Hotspot hosts are the most important part of the Helium ecosystem. That's why Fairspot gives 70% of mining revenue to our hosts, with payouts every Friday. Unlike other services that offer as little as 20% and keep the rest to themselves, we put you first by sending you a free hotspot and giving you your fair share of the earnings. No referral programs, no hype. Just a shared mission to grow the Helium network and empower you to monetize your airspace without any upfront investment. Learn more at fairspot.host. Welcome to the Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouli-Arjamandi. Today, Helium co-founder and CEO Amir Halim joins us once more to talk about the decisions that went into the hardware, software, and design of the iconic Helium Hotspot. We cover security, hardware specs, resource consumption, and also take a look into the future where there are third-party hotspot manufacturers and DIY hotspots mining on the network. We also dive into proof of coverage, which is the method of verifying that real coverage is being provided by hotspots on the network, and has also been the rocket fuel behind Helium Network's growth. You'll hear some crazy ideas about old proof of coverage schemes, including sampling public radio, and where its design might go next, including coverage maps and witness sampling. Fair warning, this is an in-depth technical discussion, but if that's what you're here for, great. Let's dive right in. Amir, welcome back to the show. Hey, Armin. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Let's talk about the Helium Hotspot. What's its function and what are some of the main considerations of its physical and software design? Because this is kind of unlike anything else that I've seen in the blockchain space. And it really looks more like a Wi-Fi router than, uh, you know, some sort of specialty hardware for a brand new network. So the Helium network is um, maybe a little bit different from some of the other networks out there. I mean, it's it, its purpose is to is to serve as sort of a low power wireless network that sensors can use. And the technology that the sort of underlying wireless technology we use is something called LoRaWAN, which is a an open standard uh, that's been around for a few years years now, sort of pioneered by this company called Semtech, based in San Jose. Um, and there, there are a number of LoRaWAN gateways on the market already, right? So these are, you could think of them almost like Wi-Fi access points, um, except they serve a LoRaWAN network instead of a Wi-Fi network. And, and LoRaWAN is a very low power, low data rate uh, kind of technology, right? So we're talking about data rates that are anywhere from 1,000 bits per second to you know, maybe 10, 20,000 if you're lucky. And so reminiscent of like, you know, early internet modem speeds rather than, you know, anything broadband. And so you're not streaming video or voice or, or doing anything like that over this, right? This is a, a sensor network purely for telemetry kind of data, like temperature readings and location pings and stuff like that. So th there's a lot of hardware out here already. The LoRaWAN ecosystem is fairly large. Uh, the, the challenge is that none of that stuff is particularly easy to use, right? The audience for that has typically been anywhere from telcos who, who sort of look for enterprise grade, you know, stuff uh, and hobbyists who are sort of comfortable tinkering with command lines and using, you know, TFTP and SSH and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that's on, that's on the IoT end or the, the sort of radio end, the wireless end on the blockchain side. Uh, we also, you know, wanted the mining part of Helium to be as simple as possible. You know, like if you look at the cryptocurrency space, um, none of that stuff is, again, particularly easy, right? If you wanted to set up a Bitcoin miner, 
um, or an Ethereum miner or really a miner of any kind, it is generally not very straightforward. There, there are some attempts to make this better with things like CoinMine, um, but they have their own sort of you know ROI questions and everything else. And so our goal was sort of twofold with the hotspot was like one, could we make an IoT LoRaWAN gateway that was you know easy to set up, uh, and could we combine it with a a, a sort of crypto miner on our Helium network that was also easy to set up, right? So that really we were broadening the audience away from just IoT enthusiasts and hobbyists uh, or hardcore sort of power users that, you know, know how to sort of create Bitcoin addresses and wallets from scratch uh, into a much broader audience that, you know, really could be anyone. And so we, we built the hotspot with that in mind and, and it's much less, about novel, you know, hardware as much as it is user experience. Um, and so there's a relatively easy to use mobile app. And a lot of the work that we put into the hotspot was really just to sort of try and make that user experience good. You know, like how do you configure a Wi-Fi network? Like, you know, how does it connect to the right? Um, how does it find peers on the blockchain? Like, how does it do everything basically and, and sort of get up and running easily? And, and that was really the thrust of all our efforts. Um, in terms of like the physical design and and the software that runs inside it. Yeah, it's kind of reminded me of setting up a Google Wi-Fi router when I got my first hotspot. And I've set up a few of them at this point. And it's really easy. I mean, it takes like five minutes. The thing itself is aesthetically pleasing, right? It can sit in someone's home without them worrying about guests coming up and saying, what the hell is that weird thing sitting on your mantle or sitting near your window? So... That's, I see why those were important considerations if this is something that you want to have widespread uh, physical deployment in people's homes. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the technical aspects of the device because I think a lot of people have preconceptions about cryptocurrency mining and then it's going to be this thing that like you need some sort of industrial power connection to your to your local utility and it's going to heat up the room and and make your power bill go to a thousand dollars a month but this isn't really like that at all there's no proof of work mechanism or anything like that and from my understanding it uses about five watts of power which is not that different from let's say an led light bulb and i haven't noticed any difference in heat uh, having a hot spot in the room and even in terms of bandwidth consumption it's not you know, going to use up your whole internet connection. It actually uses about five kilobytes per second, which I did the math. It's about 200 times less bandwidth than just streaming Netflix. So I think as a, as a hotspot host, it's been very easy to make the decision to keep this thing in my home. Um, I want to talk about some of the other hardware that's in there. Uh, so you have built this hotspot on a Raspberry Pi, and I know that you've got some more hardware in there developed by Rack. And I'm not really a hardware guy, so can you explain what the process was choosing the components for the hotspot? And was there any sort of specialized hardware that you developed just for the hotspot? Yeah, in the first, you know, the, the first iterations of the hotspot were actually a completely custom design that, that we had built. Uh, so we took a, uh, they call them system on a chip, an SOC um, that TI had built, and it was, um, you know, like a dual core processor and it had a bunch of other processors inside it. Uh, and we built, you know, the software defined radio kind of architecture and it was an entirely custom thing. And it was very cool. And there's like a ton of innovation in there 
Uh, and I think we had had built an SDR that worked really, really well at a very low price, which was very novel. Um, but one of the challenges with that approach is that everything is very customized, right? If someone else were to, were to want to build a hotspot or build a compatible device, they would somehow have to figure out how to replicate that. And that is generally fairly expensive, right? And, and if you wanted to manufacture it on, the, on your own, even if we had open sourced everything, you know, the one-off manufacturing costs are very, very high. Um, and so somewhere down the line, we, we decided that it would actually better to, be better to adopt LoRa um, rather than sort of this custom protocol, which I think I mentioned in the last, in the, in the last podcast. And, and along with that sort of came the option to take advantage of a lot of off-the-shelf hardware. Um, and so we, we started talking to this company, Rack, that's this uh, Chinese company based in Shenzhen, and they make these, you know, quite high quality, but low cost, you know, self-contained LoRa gateway modules. And so a LoRa gateway is uh, effectively an eight channel uh, receiver, right? So it can listen to eight different LoRa channels at the same time. Um, and then that sort of gateway module has to talk to some kind of processor or some, some sort of computer. Um, and the easiest thing that we could think of using was, was, a, was a Pi, right? They're relatively cheap. Um, they're available everywhere. There's good support. Most of the bugs have been figured out in terms of like all the different interfaces like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Um, there's good support for build root, which was the sort of custom Linux kernel and, and build system that we, that we've used. Um, and so that was the decision we made was to sort of head down that path rather than this proprietary or custom built hardware path. Uh, and so the hotspot is really like three major components, right? There's a Pi. Uh, there's a thing that we call internally the side table, which, which is, uh, the sort of board that the rack LoRa gateway module sits on. Uh, and that side table also has a bunch of other stuff in there, right? There's, there's uh, for example, that's where the LED light sits that you see on the outside of the case. Uh, it's also um, where the button controller sits. So there's a button on the side of the hotspot that activates Bluetooth. That's that's where that sits. Uh, it's also the power supply. You know, we didn't want to use USB or micro USB power. We thought it was too flimsy. And so we, we have a proper sort of barrel type power connector on the back of the hotspot. And then... You know, maybe most importantly in the crypto side, there's also a, a secure uh, crypto element in, in there, which is where the private key for the hotspot lives. Um, and so that's, you know, that's really what it does, right? Is it sort of sits there, it interfaces between the Pi and the LoRa gateway module, and then it provides us with these um, sort of ancillary things that we thought were important in order for the, the, the hotspot to be easy to use and, and secure. Uh, and there wasn't really anything out on the market that we could find that did exactly that. Oh, there's also GPS on it. I forgot to mention there's GPS on the side table too. Um, and you know, we, we expect that to change over time, you know, like now that I think we've, we've shown a little bit of a blueprint of, of like what you could build. We've already seen a couple of gateway manufacturers sort of emulate this a little bit. Like they're, they're now starting to include a button and a light and a better power supply and, so I think this is all all positive because those are all sort of things that you want in order to make a, a good consumer experience out of the thing. Um, and I think Helium is really the first time, I think, that anyone has has sold significant volume of LoRa gateways into the consumer space. And I think that has caused you know everyone in that ecosystem to at least pay attention. Right? It's like there's there's a different audience 
uh, for Laura than they thought. And I think most of those guys, and perhaps some of them, like we've seen some internal emails that make us giggle, uh, some still think this is sort of a weird scam kind of thing because of the cryptocurrency side. But for the most part, you know, everyone in the ecosystem is like now keen to either work with us or, you know, build compatible stuff for the network. And, and we've sort of shown them a way uh, to do that. And, and at least what we, we or our customers expect the ecosystem or the user experience to look like. Well, hopefully a rising tide lifts all boats in that respect. And I definitely have more questions for you on the manufacturing side. But you mentioned security. So how secure is this device? I think this is a concern that a lot of people have with their hosts. Will this be another vulnerable device on someone's network with you know tons of open ports and the ability to talk with other devices? Or is it fairly locked down? I mean, you never want to say that it's like super secure because you know that this always seems to end badly. But uh, I think we did all the obvious things quite well. I mean, most of the sort of IoT vulnerabilities that you see, um, like Mirai, for example, which was this huge sort of botnet thing, are, are nearly always driven the same way, which is that you've got a device sitting on your network, whether it's an IoT gateway or a printer or a you know fridge or whatever the hell it is, and that has an SSH server running and the credentials for those for that SSH server or telnet uh, are some combination of dictionary words, right? So the login is root and then the password is, you know, whatever. Right. And ge generally the, the way that those hacks have worked is that they identify what that is and then they just go and find every single device that, that sort of shares the, that combination and then they sort of have access to it and they can do bad things. Um, you know, so in the hotspot, there is only one port open, which is uh, the sort of TCP port for the peer-to-peer -peer network. You don't have to have it open. Um, you, you know, the, the way our peer-to-peer -peer system works, like it can discover other, other peers without a direct connection. It's just harder and slower. Um, so I think we have port 44158 in TCP open. Um, but I would always recommend, and there's no other ports open. So there's an SSH, SSH client running, but there's no SSH server. Uh, everything is sort of an outbound dialing kind of thing. Uh, the crypto element is, or the, the private key is, is secure on this crypto element. Uh, so you can't actually ever read the key. You don't have any idea what it is. You can just have the, uh, the crypto chip sign things for you, which is how sort of the assert location and add gateway transactions work is that you just ask the chip to sign these things and it signs them and returns you the, the, the signed value, but you still don't know what the actual key is. Hmm. Um, and so it's a cool chip. It actually was sort of originally derived from printed cartridges, believe it or not, where they were trying to do DRM on, on cartridges so that you could, you know, the printer knew that it was an authentic cartridge. Uh, so it's funny how this stuff works, but those chips are now sort of widely adopted. And I, I think we were some of the first to start using them back in, in probably 2013. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's where the security sort of lives is that we've, we've tried to lock down every port that, that is, is vulnerable, which is basically all of them. Um, I would still recommend to anyone that they should put devices like the hotspot and really anything in a DMZ sort of firewalled zone on their own network. We think right. it's secure. I'm sure there's some vulnerability, like we've done a bunch of external pen testing um, and auditing, and, and so we feel good about it, but nothing is ever perfect. And the best thing that I think you can do for yourself is, is you know, put it on an external, in an externally sort of gated environment where it doesn't have access to your internal network. 
Um, but as far as, you know, compared to other devices that we've seen, I think we did a good job in, in securing this and make it easy, making it easy to use at the same time. How is data that's transmitted through the hotspot secured? Like what kind of data is flowing through this thing? Can you talk very briefly about, you know, are people able to just send random packets to the internet or is there some more limited fashion that data is being transmitted here? I mean, there's sort of two sets of data that flow through the, um, the hotspot. So there's peer-to-peer traffic, which is, um, you know, your hotspot, we call this gossiping, but basically sending uh, blocks and transactions that it hears over the network to other hotspots, right? This is how a, a blockchain peer-to-peer network typically works is that, you know, this stuff is sort of broadcast across the network and it's shared around by all the participants of the network until eventually everyone has it. Right, so everyone gets the same blocks and everyone gets the same transactions because they're all being gossiped around this this network. Um, and for that, we use an implementation of libp2p, which was uh, designed by Protocol Labs, who implemented IPFS and Filecoin. Um, we wrote our own implementation in Erlang that added uh, a few things that we thought were necessary given the sort of consumer nature of our product. So things like NAT traversal, so you. So you can you know, navigate through all the different um, firewall setups that people have at home, so UPnP and, um, and PMP and all these other you know PNP protocols that everyone has implemented on their different Wi-Fi routers. Uh, you know none of the other P2P implementations at the time had that. Maybe that's changed now, but we we thought we needed that so that you know someone could just stick a hotspot in their house and it would automatically detect what kind of NAT situation they had and then traverse it somehow. Um, and there's some, you know, standard protocols for doing that that are called Stun, Turn, and Ice. Uh, and so we had to implement those in P2P in order for this to be viable. And you know, other blockchain projects probably don't have this problem where their their miners are or the peer-to-peer network is assumed to be running in, you know, data centers or or warehouses or something like that. But we knew that a lot of these would be on consumer home connections, and so we had to figure that out. Um, and so that that traffic is. Uh, one type of traffic that flows over the network. And then the other is the wireless uh, traffic that's being transmitted by sensors. Uh, and that is very, that, that's not IP traffic, right? There's no, there's, those are not TCP IP packets. They are LoRaWAN packets. Uh, and your hotspot sort of acts as a bridge between LoRaWAN on one side and then the internet on the other. So it, it hears these LoRaWAN packets using the gateway module that I mentioned. Um, it, they get sort of encapsulated into a JSON object and then they get delivered to whichever server they're supposed to be delivered to on the other end. And those packets are encrypted with AES-128. Um, the LoRaWAN security protocol is like fairly well documented. We didn't do anything different there. Um, and so that's, you know, that's super low bandwidth stuff. Like no one is going to be sent, no one even can really send anything malicious over LoRaWAN. Although I, sh- I probably shouldn't say that, but no one's streaming, you know, video or something over 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 LoRaWAN. It's just not it's it's not really practical. Yeah, you're limited to pretty low data rates there. So I guess the level of malicious. I mean, I guess you could send some like really naughty texts or something, but <laughs> there's a pretty limited range of things that you could do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even then they're encrypted and they go to like the server end, you know, right? So it's not it's not that exciting, you know. It's it's going it's being delivered to wherever wherever it is the sensor owner decides they should be delivered to and, and your hotspot doesn't really know a whole lot about it. Right. So it's not high risk like hosting a tour node or something where there's just like tons of traffic going to the clear net or whatever. It's just basically going to encrypted packets going to these routers and no one can even decode what's in them and they're, they're small. 
Yeah, I mean, and ideally, tour would be the same way, right? Like, I'm a big fan of it. Um, and ideally, no one should really know a lot about it, but it sounds like there are at least some concerns about how many nodes are operated by, like, you know, the DOD or whatever that seem to, like, comp compromise that system. But sim mm -hmm. similar sort of idea, right? Like, the stuff is encrypted. The host doesn't really know anything about where it's going uh, or who owns it. Um, but in the case of LoRaWAN, you know, you're you're sort of limited to very, very small payloads. Like, the maximum payload size is... 255 bytes uh, and then at the at the sort of longer range modes I think you're limited to like 11 bytes you know so you, you're not well, maybe it's a little bit more than that but it's close to that um, so you're not saying you know there's not a whole lot of damage you're doing sending an 11 byte you know non-tcp packet over the air so I want to talk about antennas for a sec uh, the hotspot has a replaceable antenna and some people in the community have gotten pretty ambitious putting huge antennas on their roofs even having really tall indoor antennas with magnetic base mounts. But the built-in antenna actually has pretty solid performance in my own testing, even easily beating some other antennas with higher DBI ratings. So what made you choose the stock antenna? What's so special about it? Yeah, so the stock antenna is from this company called Link Technologies. And um, we had started talking to them after noticing that like pretty much every high-quality radio dev kit that we were aware of, including the LoRa kits and stuff from TI and others, came with these antennas. So they're, they're black with sort of little yellow bands on them for the, for the US spec antenna. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're good. You know, they're, they are quite consistent. They perform well. They don't have the you know, highest gain. So the, you know, gain is sort of a measure of how much they can sort of amplify what they hear, I suppose, is one way of describing it. Um, but they're, you know, simple to use. Like you can't really screw it up. Like they're, they're a dipole type of antenna, so they don't need a external ground or, or anything like that. You literally just sort of screw it in and make sure it's, it's pointed up and you're sort of good to go. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like some people in the community have started to get crazy with, with their different antenna choices, which I think is great. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, unknowns there, right? Like picking antennas is not a straightforward task uh, and it, a lot of it depends on like where you mount it and how um, and you know it's, it's, there's a little bit of concern there that people are just sort of doing things that they don't exactly understand and sometimes it works i'm guilty well, and sometimes <laughs> i'm guilty sometimes of that. it doesn't yeah and no one really understands antennas other than you know 12 people in the world or something and and um you know so there's a little bit of that and we, we didn't really want to get into that too much um we wanted it to be as easy as possible to set up and use uh, but yeah, I mean, you've just sort of got to be careful with some of this stuff. I mean, I, I see a lot of people using highly directional like Yagi antennas, which, you know, you point in a certain direction and have extremely high gain. And those, those sort of look like a TV antenna. Mm -hmm. um, and those are sort of okay. Like they're, they have extremely long range, but they only go in one direction. So your, your, you know, your hotspot wouldn't be hearing any sort of traffic coming from the other direction you're also probably violating FCC rules with an antenna like that because there is a maximum amount of, of power that can be you know, radiated from these kinds of things. Uh, and so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to think about there. And so it's, you know, sometimes I see people saying like, yeah, you should use this antenna. Uh, and maybe that, you know, in some situations that's going to be true. And in others, that's going to be sort of a, a bad idea because you'll only be hearing things from one direction and, you know, the FCC probably wouldn't be happy with you if they found you. Well, not to mention it's not really benefiting the network, right? If you're only providing coverage in some sort of straight line. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it can be, you know, there's, there's certain settings, you know, if you're on, I, I don't know, like the 
outskirts of San Francisco and you have them pointed into the city, that's probably not terrible, but you, mm. you're still, you know, it's, it's not, it, it's probably just, you know, it's questionable, right? Cause you, you're still sort of in the FCC danger zone and, um, you know, it's probably better to have omnidirectional antennas when you can that, that are sort of similar to the one that the hotspot comes with. Really the, the best thing that I think you can do without getting crazy is, is to just sort of figure out how to position the antenna higher and in, in more space. You know, I, I kind of like to think of antennas kind of like a shotgun. You know, mm -hmm. the, more, the more space that you have away from the shotgun, the further that it spreads. Right. Um, but if you, if you had like a wall in front of the shotgun, then it doesn't get to spread very far. Um, and so, you know, putting the, the antenna up high in open space is, is always the best thing to do, regardless of what antenna it is. Um, and so we've had good success internally with just buying, you know, magnetic, you know, extension bases for the antenna and just sort of running them outside or putting them on a, on a balcony or putting them on a roof or whatever, but using the same antenna. Uh, and that works really, really well. So you don't have to get crazy. You don't have to buy one of the super high gain big antennas, but generally if you know what you're doing and you, you install it well, you it, it's only a benefit to, to have a, a better, bigger sort of omnidirectional antenna. Spoken like a true FPS gamer with the shotgun analogy. <laughs> yeah, it just, it's just how I think about it for whatever reason. Like it, it just it made sense to me that way. So speaking of customizations, it's currently possible to make a DIY hotspot with your own hardware and the open source Helium Miner software. So like you can get one running on a Raspberry Pi, you can transmit packets through it, but they can't participate in proof of coverage or earn token rewards yet. So how are you thinking about bringing these sort of untrusted devices onto the network where Helium doesn't necessarily control the software? Yeah, so our, our desire is that we are just sort of one of many vendors in, in the Helium ecosystem. Um, you know, we built the hotspot as we, we talked about for, for a set of reasons, but we, we want any LoRa gateway to be able to participate in mining as long as we can you know, the network can prove that they're actually creating useful coverage. Uh, and so the hard part there is that you, you need to somehow protect against these sort of virtual machine actors, you know, people who actually don't have uh, a LoRa gateway or any LoRa hardware and are just, you know, pretending to be generating packets or being able to hear packets. Um, you know, and, and there's no sort of easy way of verifying whether something was really sent wirelessly or not, right? It, it, by the time... Um, by the time it gets to the network, it is just a sort of JSON object and you could have generated the contents of that object anywhere. So, you know, the way we do it today is a little bit of a hack right? where, you know, we, we know for sure all the actors involved in the network are actually running the right hardware because they came from, from Helium Inc. And, um, they have the secure crypto chip and right. you know, we, we know, we know what those addresses are. Um, and so the step that we're we're trying to sort of get implemented now is like how do we make it possible for absolutely any kind of hardware to join the network and do it in a relatively safe way? Um, and so there's a HIP out there, which is a you know what we call a Helium improvement proposal, very much copied from uh, from Bitcoin, um, that describes a way that this could work, where there's sort of a leveling uh, scheme you know, where, where gateways join the network with the lowest possible level and sort of level up as a result of, of interacting with other gateways or hotspots that are relatively trusted. Um, I think it's an okay system. It's, it's certainly a lot better than what we have in terms of 
um, of how secure it will be in this in this context. And the intention is sort of as we said, like we don't want to be the only sort of hardware vendor here at all. Like that's not the intention. Um, we want to be able to open this up to absolutely any any hardware that's compatible with the LoRaWAN protocol. Um, and that's what you know we're working towards diligently. And there's a lot of good proposals coming out of the community as well to 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 figure out better ways to continually do this. And I think it's just going to be a, an evolution. Like there are not any other blockchain networks that I'm aware of that have this sort of like physical uh, dependency on things. And it just adds like another complication. Like we're, we're, we're trying to prove that you're creating network coverage. Um, and that on its own is just hard and difficult. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot to be figured out and a lot of like ways I think we can continue to improve this over time. And, you know, we hope to be not the only contributor in terms of like how how future uh, upgrades and improvements get rolled out. Yeah, and so for the next batch of hotspots, are you going to be producing those yourselves, or there is there a third party manufacturer that you're working with to sort of build a new model? Well, we're certainly working with as many LoRa uh, manufacturers as we as we can to just sort of encourage them to, um, you know, build stuff that is out of the box sort of compatible with helium and that, and that doesn't really take much right because the now that we've sort of switched to supporting LoRaWAN several months ago uh you know any LoRaWAN compatible gateway is in theory you know usable on the network and the, the question is just how to make the user experience good enough um that it is mm -hmm. at least resembles what what our hotspot did or, or does um and so that the question is is mostly around ux rather than a te technological challenge or then maybe they're related um, but for hobbyists and enthusiasts like it's absolutely possible once this sort of level scheme rolls out and we, we hope that that will happen by the end of summer uh, to take any LoRa gateway that you have uh, whether it's a $50 you know Chinese version or a $5,000 you know telco grade version which exists and connect it to the network and participate in mining um, that's that's the goal Gotcha. So when you say mining, there's a, there's a couple of things here. Uh, there's proof of coverage, which I want to take a quick dive into, and there is data transfer. Uh, and as of July 27th, hotspots will be receiving rewards for both of these things. Um, and so data transfer, you know, you can kind of trust any hotspot to do that because the, it's just data coming through the network. It doesn't really matter where it's happening and the data has to be paid for some way or another. So there's really no trust issue there. But proof of coverage is really just this mechanism where hotspots are kind of rewarded for existing. So what, what are some of the key insights behind proof of coverage? Because this has kind of been the rocket fuel behind the growth of the Helium network. Honestly, we were a little bit inspired by Filecoin here. I, I'm perhaps not directly, but certainly indirectly, because... You know, we had an interest in in doing something like this, and we didn't really have a great idea about how we would do it. You know, obviously, something like proof of work or or even proof of stake is not particularly useful in this context because what, what we really wanted to do was encourage people to like build a network, right? Like build a physical coverage network. Uh, and so, some of the things that you wanted to sort of incentivize in order to do that was obviously first, you know, have the right kind of hardware. Like, are you are you running a LoRa gateway or not? Uh, and then also to, to sort of be spread out enough, right? Like actually position these things such that, you know, you are being rewarded if, if it can be proved that you are creating sort of a broad coverage area or participating in a broad coverage area. 
Uh, and so Filecoin was, I think, at least for me, the first time that I had seen a practical application of a proof that was related to what the network was trying to do, right? So mm -hmm. Filecoin is, is, a, is a file storage network that's, you know, a decentralized S3 or something like that. And their proofs were all about, you know, could you actually prove that you were storing the file over time and that you still had it and that you, you could make it available if someone needed it back? And, you know, proof of coverage was an attempt along the same lines, really, which is that could we, could we somehow prove that you were creating network coverage and reward you in proportion to sort of how much network coverage you're creating or, or how much of it could be proved to, to be yours? Um, and that was sort of the original insight behind it and the original idea because at the start of these networks, and I guess I think Bitcoin was really the pioneer here, is that you have to figure out a way to reward people for both building and securing the network in the absence of it really being heavily used, right? Like at the start, there's mm -hmm. no traffic, right? There's no, there's no like hundreds of millions of devices on the network. There's not even one device on the network, right? And at, at the start. And so you have to like figure out a way to, to incentivize people to, to start doing that, right? Like how do you start from scratch and like get this sort of network effect rolling when there's nothing, there's none of it at the, at the start and sort of the chicken egg thing. And um, so I, I think crypto networks in general are very smart about this. Like this is the most interesting thing to me about the sort of crypto network effect is that you, you get to sort of incentivize these early participants and sort of disproportionately so, right? Like the earliest participants generate the most reward for themselves right like the earliest yep. bitcoin miners are you know rich now and that's an interesting characteristic that i i think some people have exploited very well or taken advantage of or built products around very well and others have just sort of squandered due to sort of selfish token distributions and just other what i consider really short-sighted decision making but that's what i think is is really interesting about crypto networks and, and so the proof of proof of coverage was is is that right like how do we figure out a way to to prove that you're running you're running the right hardware and actually sort of it can be it can be seen and heard um and so it's nothing to do with electricity it's it's not a it's not a proof of work scheme um and proof of stake you know really didn't seem to really help us there like that didn't add any any particular value and so we came up with a scheme where hotspots you know, generate challenges, which are, you can almost, it's funny that you mentioned Tor because the, the construction of a, of a proof of coverage packet is very much like Tor where it's a, a layered onion. Hmm. Um, and each layer of the onion is only sort of decryptable by specific hotspots. And so the, the way you can think of, of, a, of a proof of coverage challenge is that there's a challenger, which is a hotspot that is nowhere near, it doesn't have to be anywhere near the, the, the group of hotspots being challenged. So that can be in, you know, Florida. And what it does is, is create a challenge packet by looking at the blockchain and saying like, okay, these are, these are seven hotspots in San Francisco that claim to be in San Francisco. If I construct a onion packet that is decryptable only by those hotspots in a specific order, uh, and it, and in, I can do that because I know what the public keys of those um, of those hotspots are. And so one of the characteristics of like public key cryptography is that you can actually create something that is only decryptable by that private key by only knowing its public key, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Um, and so you know you can create this layered onion packet that is only decryptable by those seven hotspots in the very specific order that they're supposed to be able to hear the packet. 
Right. And so if you sort of, if you laid out this path with like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven hotspots, you know, layer one is encrypted such that only hotspot one can understand it and layer two, et cetera, et cetera. And then it, it delivers that packet to the first hotspot over the peer to peer network. Right. So that first step happens over the internet. Uh, and then subsequently, you know, hotspot one gets the packet and then it broadcasts it over RF. Uh, so using LoRa, it sends the packet over the air. Uh, and if hotspot two is where it is supposed to be, then hotspot two will actually hear this packet and it will be able to decrypt its layer because it's encrypted only for, for hotspot two. And then it delivers a receipt uh, back to the challenger over the peer-to-peer -peer network. So it says like, I got this, I was able to decrypt it and here's my proof of that and I'm sending it back to you. And that, you know, sort of keeps happening. And then it broadcasts it again. And then hotspot three should hear it. And it should also be able to decrypt and deliver the receipt back. Uh, and then at the end of that, either after a timeout or after, you know, hotspot seven has delivered its receipt, the challenger submits its pile of receipts to the network. Um, and then everyone gets rewarded, basically, if that, if that worked out. And everyone is incentivized to do the right thing there. The challenger gets an HNT reward for constructing the challenge and delivering the receipts. Uh, and the challengees in the past get rewarded for um, being able to sort of verify that they were able to receive this packet. So the, the neat thing about this construction is that neither, none of the hotspots in the chain have any idea who's next, right? right. And so it, it's very difficult to like trick this process in terms of, you know, trying to construct a fake packet or delivering fake receipts um, because there's no way to really know who is supposed to be next. You know, the, the challenger doesn't reveal that at any point until it's, you know, until that challenge has already been recorded in, in the chain or been mined. Um, and so that, that's sort of what we were going for there is like, how do you create a thing where, you know, someone running a fake virtual machine network would have a hard time faking all of the activity going on in there because there would be no way for them to know, you know, in the sort of random but deterministic way what was supposed to be happening. So in proof of coverage, you have these multiple elements, right? You have challengers, challengees, and witnesses. And I'm not going to get into here due to limited time constraints, but I, I would encourage anyone to go read the Helium developer docs because they sort of explain everything in a, in a really clear way and what the relative value of each part of the equation is. But what, what are the requirements to participate in proof of coverage? Does a hotspot need to be witnessed by nearby hotspots or issue challenges in order to be challenged? Today, no, um, but, well, kind of. Um, so th the way it, it sort of works is that um, when you first join the network, you, your hotspot is in sort of what we call beacon mode, right? It, no, no other hotspot sort of has heard it. It's new. Um, and it sends out sort of a beacon, which is sort of, you could think of it as a single layer POC packet. Um, and it sort of sends it out in the air and, and, and any other hotspots that are nearby uh, will what we call witness that packet, right? It will, it will hear that packet. Um, and then every hotspot, you know, uses that sort of witness data to, to inform which hotspots it should be able to hear in subsequent challenges. Um, and so you've got this sort of like graph of graphs being constructed th throughout of like hotspots who have witnessed other hotspots. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, the docs do a probably a better job that I could have trying to explain, you know, how this effectively gets started. But yeah, when you first start, you're sort of an in, invisible until other hotspots hear you. Uh, and if no other hotspots can hear you, then you, you never get included in a challenge path, right? If you're, if you're a loner in the middle of nowhere with no other hotspots around you, the only function that you can perform 
is creating challenges, so creating those encrypted layers and delivering them to other hotspots uh, until you know another hotspot is added to your area. And so being on your own is not useless. You're still adding some value to the network, uh, but because it can't be verified that you're actually doing it, you know, you can't be verified that you're there because no other hotspots can hear you. Um, you you sort of get minimal rewards relative to to what you would get if there were other hotspots in the area. And so typically we see hotspot purchasers buying two or three at a time and sort of having one in their house and one at a neighbor's house and one at a friend's house or whatever, so that they're actually creating this this sort of witness graph rather than just you know being on their own. Yeah, I've noticed that the hotspots that earn the most tokens currently are the ones that have plenty of other hotspots to communicate with, kind of as you just said. So how can people optimize their setups for proof of coverage earnings and to maximize value for the network? And what's the incentive for someone to cover a completely new area without buying two or three hotspots, or, or is there any? One of the, the, you know, one of the things that I think is neat is that you know, when you're in a new area, um, it is highly likely that when you, when you are challenged that your hotspot participates in a, in a challenge, right? And, and by that, I mean, you know, if you're in San Francisco where there is like 300 plus, maybe even 400 hotspots, um, you know, the, the probability of you being included in a challenge in that area is, is, is lower perhaps than if you're just sort of in an area on your own, uh, assuming that there are other hotspots around you in that area. So generally, it's a good thing to sort of create a new coverage area, right? So if you go to mm-hmm. a new region and you take two or three, four or five hotspots with you, that, that generally seems to be a good thing. Like the system rewards you well for, you know, creating consistent coverage in that area. Um, but generally, yeah, I mean, you want to have as many hotspots around you as possible to verify that you're actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, and the only way that proof of coverage uh, can know that is by sort of this sort of independent verification from other hotspots. And so, you know, I wish there was a way that a lone hotspot could prove that it was really doing the right thing. And we had all sorts of crazy ideas, like maybe it could sample, you know, some FM radio or some AM radio, (laughs) you know, in in the air. And like, is there a way to verify that? And, you know, you really need some system of like being able to verify, right? It's it's one thing to just sort of do something, but it needs to be verifiable. And deterministic in some way that the rest of the network can look at it and say like, yeah, okay, that, that would, that did what it was supposed to do. And, and in proof of coverage, you know, anytime one of those receipts is submitted by a challenger, every hotspot on the network, you know, verifies that it was the right thing to have done. Like, is that actually the correct path that should have been created? And are those the correct receipts? Um, and if they aren't, then the transactions get rejected and they never get mined and no one gets rewarded. Uh, and so you have to have some way of it being deterministic and verifiable. Um, and so, you know, sampling something like AM or FM radio in the air is a neat idea. We just don't know how to verify it in, in some way, right? Like how does someone look at that, that spectrum that was sampled and say like, hey, that's actually the exactly correct, you know, that's the exact, that's what that should look like if you're in that area. Um, and so I, again, I think this is like ongoing research and work that, that needs to be done. And there's all sorts of interesting ideas and, um, ways that we could th- imagine this working, but, you know, solving the lone hotspot problem, I think is, is very, very difficult for that reason, because there's, there's no other sort of external, external way to verify what you're doing. Um, so really the best way is to sort of, you know, accompany that lone hotspot with others. 
Yeah, there's a unique set of challenges with building for blockchain in this kind of distributed closed loop system where without having any sort of external oracles, which are still by and large an unsolved problem, you can't really know what's going on outside of the system or bring any sort of external verifications into it. But that being said, you've come up with a lot of iterations of proof of coverage. If you, uh, I recommend anyone who's interested in the evolution to go check out the engineering blog at engineering.helium.com because it's very transparent. They sort of give you a summary of all the software updates, like in a technical way, but also in a human readable way and explaining the reasoning behind each update, which I think is really cool. And you guys have had a lot of iterations of proof of coverage. Like I think I joined the network when it was around like V2 or V3 or something. And now we're up to, I don't know, V7, something like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think we took a different approach to this than a lot of other projects. Like, and maybe I don't know if it was right or wrong on honestly, if I'm just being honest, like I, I think what we've seen other projects do is just not launch until it's perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a way to do it. And like, you, you could certainly argue that that's the correct way to do it. Um, and I would believe most of those arguments, but you know, the other way that we've taken to do it is like, you know, let's, let's get a, a, a good effort at it. Like a very good effort at it. That, that does what we want to do. Uh, and then learn from the feedback that we get both from the community and from a sort of data collection point of view, um, about what happens and because you know what we've seen especially with these sort of consumer related project projects or products is that you don't really expect the feedback that you get like at least I, I never have and like anything that I've ever worked on and you know getting something out there is valuable in that regard right is that you you get to focus on the things that are the highest value problems uh, versus the things that you think are the highest value problems and so I don't regret that decision at all, but but one of the implications that it that it has is that proof of coverage is certainly not perfect. Um, mm -hmm. There are issues with it. There are challenges and problems and bugs, and it's a never-ending sort of challenge. I think Anatoly from Solana, when I was on that, the, the podcast that they have, um, described blockchains as like an infinite problem. Right. And... And that's really what this is. And, you know, adding this sort of physical proof element to it just makes it even more infinite um, if there is such a thing. And so I, I think, you know, waiting and just trying to perfect it would, we would have, we arguably would never have launched um, because there would always be a thing and there would always be an improvement and always be a fix. And so I think it was more important to like prove that this mechanism of building wireless networks is, is valid. Uh, that this sort of incentive scheme works and that this economic model has value um, and to sort of improve proof of coverage over time. Also bearing in mind that proof of coverage becomes less and less important a part of the network over time, right? Like as you know, we have this sort of diminishing reward schedule where over time data transfer should be the predominant way that hotspot hosts earn HNT on the network. And POC is really a a sort of start as a starter, right? It's like how you kickstart the network uh, in the same way that, you know, Bitcoin mining rewards are going to zero and it's intended that, you know, miners will earn all their fees from transactions. It remains to be seen how that's going to go. Um, but our system is, is similar in that way is that over time we expect all of the rewards going to hotspot hosts to really come from uh, data flowing over the network. So the sort of proliferation of sensors and applications that we we hope to see on this network should be how hotspot hosts are in HNT 
rather than POC, which you know is sort of a, a solution to the problem that you don't have activity at the start. Big shout out to Anatoly and the Solana team uh, for your mention of no sharding. I recommend anyone to go and check out that podcast. It's a huge inspiration for this one. So I know we only have a couple of minutes left here. So very briefly, what's the future of proof of coverage? What's in the pipeline? Uh, well, there's the, the hip that we talked about there, which, which sort of proposes this levels, um, levels scheme. Um, there are some other inter internal discussions that we've had that you know we want to open up to the to sort of larger group that relate to you know whether location is an important consideration for proof of coverage. Like today, a lot of it is is location based, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's probable that that doesn't actually matter very much. Um, and there's certainly a a rationale there that exists that you might not you know, need to care about where a hotspot actually is in order to be able to prove whether it's creating coverage or not. And so that's a very interesting uh, concept and a very interesting notion because, you know, proving uh, location of something over the air is quite challenging. Um, not only do you need very accurate uh, time stamping of, of data, which, which we have in the, in the sort of V1.1 and above hotspots, I think it gets down to like, you know, under 10 nanoseconds of, of timing accuracy, but you also have multi-path uh, um, packets and sort of RF stuff, which is when, you know, data transmitted or, or symbols transmitted over the air get reflected off things, you know, so if you imagine you were trying to time how long something took to get, to get from point A to point B, um, it gets hard when it may have bounced off another 12 buildings before mm. it got from A, from A to B, right. you no longer have any idea how, how long it should have taken. Um, and so in cities, like we're, we're no longer very confident and, and, you know, we spent a lot of time with Semtech on this, uh, we're, we're no longer very confident that regardless of the timing accuracy that you can get anywhere near the precision that we would have wanted. Uh, and so for some applications, that's going to be fine, but for locating something within a few feet or, or even tens of feet in somewhere like San Francisco, we, we just don't believe it's possible at, at, at scale. Um, and so that's, you know, that changed a lot of like the way that we thought about uh, about proof of coverage because the location was always a very big part of it. Um, but again, this is sort of one of the things that you learn from actually deploying a network rather than just sort of thinking about it is that you, you get to experience a lot of this in the wild and there's only so much, you know, testing that you can do that resembles the real world. You can get very good location accuracy using this sort of time of flight measurement in a controlled setting. You know, like if you imagine like having a bunch of hotspots in a circle with a thing in the middle, like you can almost perfectly know where that is. Right. Um, but you start adding reflections and buildings and inaccurate GPS timing and all sorts of other stuff into the equation. Uh, and it, it, you know, just starts to get harder. So a lot of the thinking around the sort of proof of coverage future might involve, you know, discarding location as a first class sort of citizen of the system which to me would be very interesting because sort of revealing everyone's location is the part of the system that I like the least. Um, hmm. And so I, I would love for that to sort of come to fruition and for that discussion to sort of go further. But it's, again, very early stages. And um, we hope to sort of involve the community significantly more in, in, in how we form some of this stuff. And we, we'd love to sort of bring more engineering power into the, into the equation. So that's really an interesting idea of ditching location. Um, can you explain a little bit the idea of why it might not matter where a hotspot is? And again, this is like super early um, type of theorizing, like not a whole lot of work has gone into this idea, but you know, as I've thought about 
or as a collectively, I think we realize like, you know, part you can prove that something is creating coverage without necessarily knowing where it is. Um, and this is sort of an interesting idea, right? It, it's, it, it changes a lot of the ways that we would think about proof of coverage. And I, I don't know if it's even feasible or viable, by the way, like this is all, mm -hmm. you know, just conjecture at this point. Yeah. All, all very, all very conjectury, but, um, it's interesting, right? Like, do you actually care where the thing is as long as you can prove that it can hear RF? That's mm. really the discussion, right? Like, do, right. do you actually care that it's in my house um, as long as a sensor in the area can send data and have it delivered to the internet? Like, is it actually relevant to, to know where the hotspot is? And that's, that's uh, again, like a super interesting idea. And as you sort of dig into it a little bit more, it becomes maybe more obvious why that, that may be feasible. Um, but it would change the way that POC certainly works today, where a lot of it is, is uh, you know, based on um, where something is, you know, that, that like the entire structure of that, of that system is based on that. And so, um, yeah, it just sort of depends. And again, like there's a lot of stuff, it's a very fluidly moving landscape. Like at the start of this project, we thought that GPS-less location uh, was highly valuable. And after sort of dealing with customers and, and deployments for the last like three, three plus years, uh, like no longer seems to be true. Like GPS is low enough power. And, you know, now there are chips that incorporate GPS and Wi-Fi sniffing and cellular base station sniffing into a single chip hmm. um, that give you like additional like location insights. Uh, and so for most, you know, users of the network, so customers that, you know, don't care about the crypto side at all, they just want, you know, just want to build a product like a tile or something. Those are, you know, much more practical ways of, of solving that problem than, you know, trying to do the, the, the time of flight thing where you need like really a massive amount of density across a whole country in order to, to make that work. Because, you know, just one hotspot hearing you is no longer sufficient. You need like four or five, six, seven or eight to really get sort of good location accuracy without using GPS. Um, and so again, that's like all of this stuff that we've learned just from putting this out there and dealing with potential customers, like really helps inform like where we should be spending our time. Um, and so we, uh, that's become one of the things is like, okay, well, how important is location uh, in the, in the equation? And, and, you know, so there's some discussion around that. It may be that we, that sort of everyone realizes location is really important and that still needs to be a first class citizen. Um, today we use it as sort of a type of civil resistance in a way, like you can't be in two places at the same time. Right. Um, and, and that is part of, you know, part of sort of what helps proof of coverage work. Um, and so there's a lot to figure out there. And again, it's, it's very early and, and maybe even stuff that we shouldn't be talking about too much because it's miles away from any, uh, practical implementation. But we, the point I think is more that there is more work to be done on POC um, and it needs a lot of thought and a lot of ideas. And there are sort of a constant never ending stream of things that I think we could do to, to make it better and that everyone can, can contribute to, to make it better. Um, but it hasn't been bad by any means. And I think, as you said, it's, it's been a great fuel to, to build the network and, and sort of get it deployed, even in, even though we know it's not, you know, perfectly, perfectly perfect. Yeah. I think the idea of the network, not caring where hotspots are located uh, is kind of already baked in, right? I mean, you don't give any priority to any sort of urban area or, or any location, really. It doesn't matter if you're deploying in New York City or you're deploying in rural Virginia, you're still going to get the same reward 
regardless. And so in a certain sense, the only reason that locations currently exist is just for people to have a general idea of where hotspots are. But in terms of the actual functionality of the network, it doesn't really provide any utility. And I know you guys are embarking on some coverage mapping efforts using um, third-party devices, uh, LoRaWAN devices that have GPS built in, and, and that's sort of a pilot program at this point. But are you thinking of creating coverage maps in a way that would eventually end up on chain? Or is this sort of like just an exploratory initiative? Yeah, I, I don't know, honestly. Um, there is... So one of our engineers put together something that I've wanted to do for the longest time. So I'm so glad that he did this, which was to take all of the witness data that's on chain and uh, turn it into a, a heat map of coverage. And I don't know if this has been shared yet, but we have it. It's awesome because it, this is actually like real coverage information that is sort of autonomously generated through the proof of coverage process. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I don't know if he's shared that with anyone, but it's, it's really cool to look at because rather than just sort of the theoretical modeling that you can do using tools like CloudRF and, and everything else, this is actual like, okay, one hotspot transmitted and another hotspot witnessed. And that is sort of what informs the, the heat map that was built there. So I think that's one way to do it, uh, which is great. And probably the most scalable way because it doesn't involve you know, needing to drive around or whatever. Um, but I also really liked the way that uh, TTN did this. So, that, so the Things Network has a, a project called the TTN Mapper. And it's sort of this open source initiative where, you know, anyone can build a, a GPS device that is compatible with the sort of Mapper protocol uh, and just sort of wander around, like transmitting data into the Mapper that then, it, you know, the Mapper uses to create a coverage map. So I, I love that idea. Like I, I think that's a fantastic initiative. Um, they did a really nice job on that. And so I, I think we want to do something similar where, you know, people can build a compatible device of some kind and walk around and sort of build a coverage map in, in their area. Whether that should be on chain or not I, I, is debatable. Like I, I would guess no. Uh, the witness data already is on chain. Um, and sort of serves that function a little bit, you know, like you can build the heat map the same way that, that one of our engineers did. Um, so I, I would argue you don't need more data. Like you, you want to be careful about the ledger size and you know, how much stuff you're storing on there. True. Um, but you know, there's all sorts of stuff that people can do with or without our assistance. Like all of that, you know, lives on chain and you just need the time and effort to, to go build it. Um, but yeah, so curious to see what happens there. I mean, the, the TTN map is an open source thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure someone will fork it and, and, and do a version on Helium one of these days. Uh, but I, I really like those sort of open initiatives around, around coverage mapping. Yeah, I love the idea too. And I've definitely fantasized about, you know, how can you give a useful device to like say Uber drivers that you can give them for free or some, somehow subsidize the device um, and just sort of pass out devices to people who might be moving across vast amounts of terrain to create this sort of crowdsourced coverage map. And I know that there are some apps out there that are doing kind of something similar. I think XYO is one of them. I, I don't know too much about it. That might not be accurate, but um, it seems like this is more of a smartphone-based sort of location mining thing that's, that's really interesting. So I'd love to see if something like that could be combined with the Helium network. Because uh, I think robust coverage maps are can be really useful for, for anyone who's considering deploying in an area. 
Yeah, I mean, eventually they become sort of kind of a must. You know, like you need to have some decent sense of of what the coverage looks like, and you can look at the cover, the sort of hotspot map and get a sense of it. Um, but sometimes it's sort of non-obvious, you know, like in one direction, my, the hotspot in my house creates about half a mile of coverage. And in the other direction, it creates about eight miles of coverage. Right. Um, and so it's, it's, it's non-obvious and it sort of depends on the terrain and it's all, all sorts of other stuff. And so eventually I think you, you want as much coverage information as you can. Um, and, you know, just like telcos sort of struggle with this problem and make up maps and, you know, it's just sort of a never ending, a never ending problem. But I, I think distributing it and sort of opening it is, is really the best way to, to make it happen. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch how the network plays out. It's certainly been an exciting year. I think we're coming up on just one year. I believe the first block was mined July 29th, right? 2019. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. So I think we've got another 12 days until the anniversary. And yeah, so it's, it's been interesting, certainly. We've, we've learned an absolute ton. Um, but I'm, I'm like really happy and, and certainly very proud of the team in terms of like what, what's been built here. I think it's really one of the most complete implementations of like a valuable or, or potentially useful blockchain network. Um, yeah. And I, I hope that we see a lot more. It's insane how fast you guys have moved and how many iterations you've done and how, you know, the whole thing hasn't come crashing down in the meantime. I mean, it's just, it's been really a thrill to watch and I just can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah, thank you. Like I said, I think we've gone, the team has gone at an extraordinary pace. Um, and it's exciting. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot to do. And like I said, we, you know, our, our desire is that we are just one of many contributors to the network. But, we, but I think the sort of nature of these things is that someone sort of has to push it into life. And I think we've done that. Uh, and now we're starting to see like a pretty good ecosystem of, of stuff forming. Uh, um, so very, very happy with that. I think it's, I think it's awesome. And um, we just sort of are excited to watch where the network goes and, and happy to be a participant in it. Amazing. Well, Amir, thanks for your time. Hope you have a good rest of your day and uh, talk to you again soon. Yep. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care.